Happy birthday. So a couple of more, just John, I saw John where, that's him walking in. He's got great timing. Raise your hand, John, raise your hand. There's John, Pastor John Ware. Come on, give him some love. He's gonna be planning a church here in Newport News in the, uh, in the coming months through uh, LifeHouse. And he's been working with a good friend of ours, Brandon Shank, down in Virginia Beach. So we're praying for you and for believing good things. And we're glad you're coming to our city. Come on. So it's going to be good. It's going to be good. So, um, hey, just want to remind you, if you call this your church home, the, uh, the Faith Promise cards that Anthony was referencing, just a lot of the things that we're doing. So if you've not had a chance to turn yours in, at, we, we, turn yours in yet, uh, we hope that you do. Uh, 100% of all the money that you give to Faith Promise, which is our missions giving fund, 100% of that goes right back out the door. And so we want to be able to be generous to missionaries. We want to be able to be generous at moments with churches that are planning in our city, uh, like Pastor John. And so all of that funding enables us to be able to give uh, to those opportunities. So we're launching a new series tonight. And I've been out of the pulpit for a couple of weeks getting ready for our business meeting that was uh, last uh, weekend. I do that every year. And, uh, and so I've just been praying and uh, just seeking God for, for where are we going to be going over the next several weeks and possibly the next few months. And so I'm excited about what we're going to be talking about tonight uh, and in the weeks to come. I was in here a Friday afternoon praying late Friday afternoon, and, uh, and, and, and I felt like God just really began to talk to me. I, I, I prayed for the service and, and, and all the, the, my normal routine, but then I just, I just began to pray for the coming weeks and the coming months, and, 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 and the, my plan was that we were going to do a series on our virtues, the 24 virtues that we teach, and, uh, and then all of a sudden, just God began to speak to me about the pathway of gathering. I'm going to talk about our discipleship model in just a minute. And so he, the, 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 the verse out of the Psalms where it says, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. And God just began to download this message in my heart for gathering. And, uh, and so uh, I guess about, I don't know, half an hour later, I'd finished writing down all these notes and praying. And, and, I, and I said, God, we're, we're doing a series on virtues. And you're giving me a message for a couple of weeks on gathering, but that's one of our, of our, of our pathways. And it was like God said, you know, how about I tell you what you're going to preach about, and then you do what I say, right? It was one of those moments, and I was like, I got it. I got it. So we're not doing a series on virtues. We're doing a series on discipleship, right? And so I know you can clap for that. Come on. We have a few enthusiastic people right here in the front, but I'm going to win everybody else's heart over by the end. All right, there we go. So, 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 so I don't know where, I know we're going to talk about a virtue tonight and next week, and then we're going to jump to a pathway after that, and then it might be that we hit the commands some. Uh, so I, I think our series focus has broadened a little bit since Friday, and so we might be in a different part of our discipleship model each week. Our, our discipleship model is called Praxis. If you want to learn more about that, we just launched the new website called letspraxis.com, uh, and all of it's explained there, the name of it, uh, all the different steps that are, are associated with it. It's, it's based on four numbers, what we call the 1, the 6, the 12, and the 24. In fact, I'll read you this little excerpt that we have on the site. It says, when Jesus invites me to be his disciple, that's the 1, the invitation, he expects me to obey, to obey his commands. That's the six. And all six of those commands are a, di a direct quote from Jesus, either from the Gospels or the book of Acts. I obey those commands by walking in spiritual pathways. That's the 12. And those pathways are what many people call spiritual disciplines. We call them pathways because they take you somewhere. And when I walk in those pathways, I become a virtuous 
person. There's 24 virtues, the ultimate measure for my progress as a disciple. These 24 virtues come from what's called the five great growth list that's a teaching that's done by Dr. George Wood, who's one of our great modern day scholars. It's Matthew 5, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 13, Galatians 5, and 2 Peter 1. And so all of you note takers, I know that frustrates you when we move that quick, but this is on the website, our PDF document for our notes for every weekend is always there. And so you don't have to feel like if you don't get it down, you're going to miss it. You can download that document and all the notes are there. So the model is really based on kind of two principles. One is the principle that you find Jesus going to time and time again through turning to uh, agricultural parables or agricultural metaphors or analogies. And it's the idea that if you create a spiritually healthy environment in your heart, virtues will grow. Right? You create a healthy environment, growth is going to come. It's why one of the things when we're talking with other pastors, especially pastors who are planning churches, we say, hey, don't, don't focus on growing. Focus on being healthy. Because if you're healthy, you're, you're going to grow. And it's the same thing for our individual lives. If you focus on the spiritual well-being of your life, those 24 virtues are going to begin to flourish inside of you. It's also based on the principle of displacement. Meaning that if you've got good things growing in your life, it has a tendency to push out the stuff that doesn't belong. And it leaves little room for anything else to grow in your life that's not supposed to be there. So, Father, we thank you for this time that we're going to have together in your word tonight as we dig into this series, this discipleship series, possibly over the next several months. And we know, Father, that, that your greatest hope should also be our greatest desire. And that's that each of us are going to look a lot more like Jesus tomorrow than we do today. In Christ's name, come on, and everybody said. Amen. So we're going to dig around in the story of Gideon a little bit tonight that's going to kind of launch us out over the next couple of weeks. Judges chapter 6. So if you've got your Bible, you can turn there. If you've got a device, you can swipe there. Judges chapter 6. And we're going to move around. I'm going to cover a lot of this text, but it's going to be important to set up where we're headed, and it's going to be important to set up where we're going to be next week. Verse 1 says, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord handed them over to the Midianites for seven years. So just to give you some background, Israel does not yet have a king. And and, and the way that God would serve the people when they were in in the time of need, they would raise up what was called a judge. Samson was one of the most popular judges that maybe you're familiar with who would lead the people into victory. The Midianites were so cruel that the Israelites made hiding places for themselves. Pay attention to these details because it's going to be important for when we get to Gideon's actions. This context gives us some insight. It was so cruel that the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains, caves, and strongholds. Not just one of the tribes, but all 12 of the tribes throughout the whole entire region of Israel. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, marauders from Midian and Amalek and the people of the east would attack Israel, camping in the land and destroying crops as far as Gaza. They left the Israelites with nothing to eat, taking all, listen, all the sheep, all the goats, cattle, and donkeys. These enemy hordes coming with their livestock and tents were as thick as locusts. They arrived on droves of camels too numerous to count. The Bible's not given to hyperbole. If it sounds like an exaggeration, it's because God wants us to understand the complete and utter and total devastation that people were suffering under. 
Listen to what it says. They stayed until the land was stripped bare. So Israel reduced, was reduced to starvation by the Midianites. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. Now I'm going to jump down to verse 11, and then I want to come back to 7 through 10. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree at Oprah. She's been around for a long time. Which belonged to Joash of the clan of, of, the clan of Abiezer. Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of a wine press to hide the grain from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Verse 13. Sir, Gideon replied, you got to love his audacity here, right? If the angel, this is a complaint and a little bit of sarcasm. If the angel of the Lord is with us, then why all has this happened to us? And, and where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord brought us up out of Egypt, but now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites? Now, listen to, let's jump back to verse 7. When they cried out to the Lord because of Midian, the Lord sent a prophet to the Israelites. And he said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of slavery in Egypt. I rescued you from the Egyptians and from all who oppressed you. I drove out your enemies and gave you their land. I told you, I am the Lord your God, and you must not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you will now live, but you have not listened to me. So when we just read these verses 11 through 13, Gideon is restating to the angel of the Lord the message that was given by the prophet. And what he's saying is, so what? You did all that stuff years ago. What are you doing for me today? It's interesting, isn't it, that in his complaint, he left out the last part of the preacher's message, which explained while they were suffering, which is because they were walking in a place of disobedience. How many times do we come into settings like this and God speaks so directly to our circumstance and our situation to help us understand why we're struggling with what we're struggling, but we choose to ignore the part that puts some responsibility on us. And that's exactly what we see Gideon doing. He has a complaint, and you can see this complaint has been festering in him. Are you with me? So you know because of the specificity of his complaint and how connected it is to the message of the prophet that he's been in the settings where this prophet has been speaking over them. He knows what was said. And even still, you would think that some part of Gideon would have said to the angel of the Lord, forgive us. May the Lord be patient with us in our disobedience. But that's not what he did. Because you know what? That's not what you and I do. Because when we're suffering, our first reaction, right, the allergy of our humanity, is that we're looking for someone else to blame. We want it to be someone else's fault. And what I love is that the angel doesn't give up on Gideon. And God's not going to give up on you. Even if your reaction to God in the midst of your suffering that's based on your own foolishness, even if you might be complaining to God God says, I'm just going to let you get that out, and then we're going to work through it together. Listen to what Gideon says. So let's jump down, verse 14. Then the Lord turned to him and destroyed him with fire out of his mouth. That's not what it says, is it? 
Some of you are like, oh, that's a great story. Wish that was in my Bible. No, it's not, right? That's what he deserved, but that's not what he gives him. He gives him grace. Then the Lord turned to him and said, go with strength, the strength that you have, and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I'm sending you. But Lord Gideon replied, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest of the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I am the least in my entire family. The Lord said to him, I will be with you, and you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. Gideon replied, if you are truly going to help me, show me a sign to prove that it's really the Lord speaking to me. Don't go away until I come back and bring my offering to you. The angel of the Lord answered, I will stay here until you return. Now Gideon hurried home. He cooked a young goat with a basket of flour. He baked some bread without yeast and then carrying the meat in a basket and the broth in a pot, he brought them out and presented them to the angel who was under the great tree. The angel of God said to him, place the meat and the unleavened bread on this rock and pour the broth over it. And Gideon did as he was told. Then the angel of the Lord, listen to this, touched the meat and the bread with the tip of his staff in his hand and fire flamed up from the rock and consumed all that he had brought. And then the angel of the Lord just disappeared from right in front of Gideon's eyes. And when Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he cried out, O sovereign Lord, I'm doomed. I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Now listen to this part of the story, right? Because if you read through this too fast, you miss it. The angel's not there anymore. So up until this point, the angel of the Lord has been talking to Gideon. He's like a messenger, right? He's representing a message from God to him. Now the angel is gone. Now the conversation is no longer with a messenger. The conversation is with God himself. There is an audible voice that is speaking to Gideon. It's all right, the Lord replied. Do not be afraid, you will not die. And Gideon built an altar to the Lord, and this is what he named it. He named it Yahweh Shalom, which means the Lord is peace. And the altar remains in Oprah in the land of the clan of Abiezer to this day. Now, all throughout the Old Testament, you find moments where God either reveals himself through a new name that helps us understand the attributes of his heart and his character towards us, or something happens to someone and someone ascribes a name to him that then God adopts and makes his own. And so we're going to be talking about this idea of God being a God of peace, which is one of our 24 virtues tonight and next week. And what we're going to see tonight is we're going to spend some time exploring is that there is a powerful connection, a powerful correlation that the Bible clearly makes between situational peace and the virtue of inward peace. Meaning that there's peace that's outside, right? There's peace in our circumstance. There's peace in our situations. But then there's another kind of peace that the Bible talks about that's in here. That's, it's the virtue of peace. It's, it's a person who has the character of peace. This virtue comes from the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, right? So there's a peace inside of us and th that we should want to be there. Or, or should I say there's a peace that's supposed to be inside of us that others want to be in there, right? 
And then there's sometimes there's peace in our situation that's lacking that we long to be there. And what I want to show you tonight, and then we're going to explore deeper next week, is there is a, a connection between the two. If you want to have this, then you got to have that. Genesis 22, 14. Here's some other names of God. Watch this. Abraham named the place Jehovah-Jireh, right? Some of you who grew up in the 80s, the Jehovah-Jireh song is right kicking around in your head. Don't get nervous, I'm not going to sing it. Which means the Lord will provide. To this day, it says, to this day, people still use that name as a proverb. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Abraham's got his son, he's bringing him up, right, to the mountain, and there's a ram that's being driven up the other side by God, and even though Abraham is willing to sacrifice his son, the angel of the Lord stays his hand at the last minute and provides a ram for the sacrifice, so he has this experience of God being his provider, and in that moment he says, God is the God of provision. Exodus 17, 14 through 15. After the victory, the Lord instructed Moses, write this down on a scroll as a permanent reminder and read it aloud to Joshua. I will erase the memory of Amalek from under heaven. It's interesting, these are the very people that are now destroying Israel. Moses built an altar there and named it Jehovah Nissi, which means the Lord is my banner. And the idea that, that God is, is the source of their victory and their military campaign, they have these banners, right? And, and, and God is on that banner as they march because he's their champion. This is the story of where, where Moses, when his hands were up, they were winning the battle. But when his, he got tired and his hands began to fall, then the Amalekites would begin to Went, went over the Israelites. And so Joshua's down there leading the army and Aaron and her are, are literally holding up his arms and they find a rock for him to sit on so that they can win the day. It's at the end of that battle. They experience victory. And then they said, God, you're my banner. Genesis 14, 19 through 20, backing up in time. This is before Abraham's name was changed. So now he's just Abram. Melchizedek blessed Abram with this blessing. Blessed be Abram by... God Most High, which in the Hebrew is El Elyon, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, El Elyon, who has defeated enemies for you. Then Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the goods he had recovered. This is right, this is the amazing story of, of, of Abram taking just 312 military trained men and he defeated, I want to say it was like five kings' armies with this, this handful of soldiers to rescue Lot and, and the other people that had been taken captive. And so they experienced this amazing victory and then Melchizedek proclaims this, this name of God. He's the God of the Most High. What's interesting is that every one of these names came after the experience. Abraham experienced provision, and that's what caused him to say, you're my Jehovah Jireh. The, the Israelites experienced victory, and, and, and then he's, they said, well, he's Jehovah Nissi. And then Abram and his, these, this, these warriors, they experience this incredible win over all of these kings and their armies, and it's after that they are willing to say El Elyon the God most high. All of these names come after God has proven himself to them. After. Sometimes we need to experience something before we can believe something. And God is gracious to us. Because what God could say is, you're going to believe it 
One, two, three, go. He could do that. But he, he's patient with us. He's loving. He's caring. And he says, all right, I'm willing to create the experience that will then give birth to the belief. Judges 6, 24, which we just read. Let's read it again. Gideon built an altar to the Lord, and there he named it Jehovah Shalom, which means the Lord is peace. Shalom is a powerful word in the Old Testament because it really has four different aspects. Peace, this word peace to the, to, the, to the Jewish community and even us today now as devoted followers of Christ, we recognize there's, there's many different aspects. It has a manifold meaning. One of them is just this idea of basic tranquility. Many of you at the devoted conference were posting these incredible pictures of the amazing view, right, that you had from your hotel and some people were actually putting down how peaceful that view was, that feeling that you had when you opened up that sliding door and you could hear the ocean and you felt the breeze and could taste the salt air, peace came over you. That, that's part of shalom. It's the idea of the human experience. There's a feeling of tranquility that we can find together. And then it goes beyond that. This idea of tranquility can mean that you're prospering in every area of your life. There's another kind of peace, which means that, that, that you have victory over your enemies. For Israel as a nation, that meant militarily victory over their enemies, but also sometimes in personal relationships. There can be an enmity, right? There's a sense of we're at odds with people, and we want their, it to be reconciled. And so it's what many husbands, what you felt when you didn't load the dishwasher, when your wife came home from the devoted conference and didn't move the laundry through, right? Come on. There is no peace in your home, but we're here for you. I remember when our kids were little and Vanessa would go away to a conference like that. It's easy now, right? They, they take care of me, right? Last, last night, Ethan made pizzas for, for the family. I'm telling you, those years are coming. If you put your time in now, right, they will serve you later. But when they were little, I just, I just want us all to be alive when my wife gets back, right? Just everybody alive. Low standards. There was no peace in our home. Come on, this is good stuff. There's unity. There is shalom in the sense that when the people of God are unified together and of one heart. When, when Joshua and the Israelites conquered Jericho, there was shalom in the land. All 12 tribes, all the people together were of one heart, of one mind, of one focus. They, they, they were together. There was peace amongst them in the sense that they were unified as one, and that's long since gone out of Israel. And then the last one, possibly the most powerful, is the idea of us having a sense of being reconciled to God. For all of us, before we made a vow of devotion to Christ, we had this sense of, of being estranged from our creator, and it creates this deep pain in our soul, and it's not satisfied until we're restored and reconciled to him, which comes when we make a vow of devotion to Christ, and we take like what we like to call here at City Life our first spiritual breath when the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us, and that first night after that first vow, we lay our head down on our pillow with a clean conscience. For many of us, it was for the first time in our lives, and we felt peace, shalom. It can mean one of them 
It can mean all of them. And I think when Gideon declares Jehovah Shalom, he's thinking about all of them because none of them existed for him personally or for his nation. And what I love about this story is that Gideon has experienced none of the shalom in order to believe that shalom was possible. Every one of the other stories of these names of God that we shared together, there was an experience that birthed the belief. I don't need that anymore. (laughs) But now we find Gideon is willing to declare something that he believes before the experience happens. And what we learn is we have to be careful. We can't take advantage of God's grace. That there's times where he says, okay, I'm going to let you experience it so that you can believe it. But there are other times when he says to you and he says to me, you've got to learn to believe so that you can experience. There is a journey of faith that Gideon is demonstrating to us. And I believe that not only is this just a principle for life in general, but I believe that it's directly connected to this idea of peace. That peace is unlike so many other things in life. The shalom that you and I want to find, whether it's tranquility, whether it's victory, whether it's unity, or whether it's being reconciled to God, that we have to believe that those things are possible before we will see them come true in us. Israel is experiencing none of these. Yet Gideon proclaims the Lord is peace even though there is no peace. How many of you have a show that you like to watch? Anybody have a show that you like to watch? Come on. Don't don't be ashamed. We've got a TV in every room in our house. Come on. (laughs) If that makes you nervous, then you need to go find a church somewhere else. (laughs) We're all about media. Even if, and you might say, well, he's got teenagers. If I didn't have kids, I would have a TV in every room in my house. So one of our new shows is Alone. Anybody watching the show on the History Channel? No? You got to check it out. You got to check this show out, right? It just finished its third season. Spoiler alert, because I'm going to tell you some outcome for the third season. So if if you've not caught up, you you should leave now, right? But, but, But this show, they picked 10 contestants. And in the first two seasons, they were on Vancouver Island. The last season, they were in Patagonia. They, they, they're, they're given a list of things that they can pick from, but it's, it's, it's a pretty sparse list. And they drop them off, they drop them off, and the contest is who can survive by, they're not given any food. It's like tarps. They have to build a shelter. They have to learn to fish or hunt. And so, so, so you think that what they're doing is waiting out starvation, but for the most part, in the end, it's the isolation that gets them. It's the isolation that gets them. You want to see some before and after pictures? Okay, let's, let's look at one here. So this is Fowler. He's the winner of season three, which is the person that we picked as a family, just for the record, not bragging, but a little bit. Season one, season one, 56 days, 56 days before everybody tapped out. Season two, 66 days for the winner. See, it's going to keep getting longer because these people are watching the show, right? So they're learning. And, and, and it's like this idea, once one person does it, you realize you can do it. So the bar's just going to keep getting higher. 
It's just going to keep getting higher. Season three, 87 days. Now, if you think I could do 87 days, you watch the show and you'll say, I'll do 87 minutes. 87 minutes. This is Fowler before he left. This is him dropped off. No, go back. Don't show that one yet. This is him here in the lower left corner of the shelter that he made. And then this is him, what he looked like when he won. Now, he doesn't look too depraved, does he? Because he was really good. But he does look like possibly the younger brother of the man of when he went out. You with me? Now, let's look at Dave. Dave in the upper right-hand corner, that's who he was when he left. This is him gnawing on a piece of raw fish on the left. Right? You think that you like sushi until you have to eat it like this. I'm just saying. This is Dave towards the end. And there he is at the very end. When they came, they do medical checks, checks later on. His blood pressure was 80 over something. His organs were about ready to shut down. If they had not pulled him off and put him in the hospital, he, pro- he probably would have died. And, and, and as you're watching towards the end, he had a boatload of food that he had begun to store in his shelter. All of these, he had come out with a way to, he knew how to dry fish and smoke fish. And, and, and what they began to explain in the show, it's fascinating. When you begin to experience starvation, you begin to hoard the food that you desperately need to eat because your brain begins to lie to you in this, this place of panic. So he, he could have won, right, if, if he had not succumbed. But that's part of the journey. That's part of the, of the contest. I, I want you to see this because I think sometimes when we read the Bible and it says that they were starving as a nation, we think, well, maybe, you know, how hungry could they be? We read the stories in the Bible like Gideon, and it says that they took all their crops. It says that they took all their livestock, everything that they had. It says as a nation, as a people, they were starving to death. They looked like Dave. There was no phone to call. There was no button to push. There were no producers that were going to come in and say to Israel, you lasted longer than any other nation. You win the prize. This is real life for them. Real life. Not sure if they're going to live another day. We're entertained by reality TV. That's just the world that we live in. This is history. This was really happening. And I think sometimes in our Western modern culture, it's hard for us to grasp the reality of their desperation because most of us will never experience that kind of despair in our entire life, which is one of the reasons why at least once in your life, go on an overseas missions trip to a developing country. It will change your perspective for the rest of your life. Alone. All right, here it comes. You ready? Judges 19, Gideon hurries home. He cooks a young goat. Where the heck did that goat come from? Where was this goat? I'll tell you where it was. They've been hiding this animal from all of these raids because they fear for their life and they're not sure how they're going to live another day. 
So resourceful people began to find ways to hide things that they desperately needed. So they've hidden a goat. Right? We, we push through some of these details in the story so quick we miss the impact that God has put there for us. And what else is he? He's got flour. Where did that come from? They're learning how to hide this food that they desperately need to eat. But he doesn't eat this food. He makes a broth. He carries it to the angel of the Lord. I, I don't know about you, but if that's me... I'm snacking on a little bit of that stuff on the way. Right? Is it just me? This goat is delicious. Right? He's starving to death. And he brings this food and he puts it on the rock. He doesn't even take a single bite. Now these details aren't in the story, but it's there if you read carefully. You know, just as well as I did, he had to sneak that food there. If people knew that they had this food, right? they would begin to, when, when people are starving to death, they're stealing from each other to survive. How does he even get the food there with no one knowing? And how is it that people didn't come out of everywhere once it caught fire? Because I know it's just like at your house like it is mine. When you come home and somebody's grilling, you're trying to think, who is that and do I know them well enough to show up at their house? You can smell those steaks on the grill, even though you're having macaroni salad. People are starving, and that, 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 that sacrifice gets consumed. You know that that's the smell of that roasted meat and the broth and the flowers just wafting everywhere. But yet, he's a man who's starving to death. He is an incredible person of faith. If you think Gideon is a man of faith because he's willing to declare Jehovah Shalom in a time and nation and in Israel's history when there is no peace, if you think he's a man of faith there, then what kind of man of faith is he now? I would probably say beyond any faith that I've experienced in my own life. And God keeps on going. Listen to this. Oh, I love this story. 625. So that night, the Lord says, take a bull. Maybe that goat was, goat was scrawny. Maybe that goat didn't have a lot of meat on its bones. Maybe the goat was starving too. God says, all right, Gideon, I want you to take a second bull. And we don't know why it says second. Most people believe, because we're not going to get to this part of the story tonight, that the first bull was used to tear down the pagan altars. We're going to get there, we're going to get there next, next Saturday night. So the idea of a second bull, there's not been a first bull that's been sacrificed. It was a goat, and now there's this bull. And that's, people believe that detail is there for that, in case anyone was wondering. Take a bull from your father's herd. He has a what? He has a herd? This is one incredibly resourceful family, right? They're hiding food, not just from these roaming marauders that are stealing everything, but somehow they've, they've found a way to hide this food even from others that would come and take it. 
He says, take a bull from your father's herd, the one that's seven years old, and pull down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah poles standing beside it. Then build an altar to the Lord and your God here on this hilltop sanctuary, laying the stones carefully. Unbelievable. The faith that Gideon demonstrates I love that God asks more of him. Because if you believe, as I believe, in this premise that in order for us to, to, us to experience shalom and the peace of God, then we have to believe in order for us to experience that peace is different from some of these other things in life like Jehovah Jireh and Jehovah Nisi and El Elyon. With peace, God is saying, no, you got to believe first before you can experience. Could it be that what we're learning in this story of Gideon is that the measure of your faith determines the measure of the peace that you find? So Gideon brings the goat because that's the size of his sacrifice that is reflective of his faith. Because he knew where that herd was. He could have started with the bull, but he didn't because his faith wasn't quite there yet. So God knows that there's got to be more faith because there's more peace that's supposed to come. God understands the size of shalom that Gideon is supposed to usher into an entire nation. And even though we should champion and celebrate Gideon's faith for what he's demonstrated already by being willing to declare that God is Jehovah Shalom, by being willing to bring the goat and the unleavened bread and the broth as a sacrifice, God is looking down upon him. He sees the peace that's supposed to be experienced, and now he knows he's got to get Gideon's faith to a place that's big enough to be commensurate to the peace that's supposed to be found. So he says, go get a bull. And he does. And he makes this sacrifice to God in the midst of a time when a nation is dying. Now you might say, Fred, I, I think you're preaching unfair. Because if I saw an angel like that. I would do whatever he asked of me. Maybe you're thinking I'm preaching unfair because you're, you're saying, well, if I heard the audible voice of God, I'm pretty sure that I would give any sacrifice that God asked of me. Maybe you're reading this story. I've read stories like this before and thought to myself, maybe it's just my own confession, but I know some of you and I know it's yours too. That we have this, this mindset if God would do this for me, I would live better. If God would do these kinds of things for me, I would be a better Christian. It sounds a little bit like a conversation that took place in Matthew chapter 16. Verse 1 through 4. One day the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to test Jesus, demanding that he show them a miraculous sign from heaven to prove his authority. Listen to what Jesus says. He replied, you know the saying, red sky at night means fair weather tomorrow. Red sky in morning means foul weather all day. You know how to interpret the weather and signs in the sky, but you don't know how to interpret the signs of the times. Only an evil and adulterous generation would demand a miraculous sign, but the only sign I will give to you is the sign of the prophet Jonah. What's that about? 
Because these people suffered from humanity just like we do. And from this mindset and this mentality that says if God wants me to be better, he's got to show better. He's got to do more things in my life so that I can be a better person. And this is what people were saying to Jesus in his day. And so there are times when God is willing to show more and do more because he knows that there's got to be a belief that comes. But then there's other times, especially when it's dealing with peace, where God is saying, no, 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 you've got to believe before you experience anything. And even in those moments, sometimes he's willing to do something to stir their faith. So why would Jesus be so abrupt with these people? Why wouldn't he say, okay, well, I'll show you a little something? Because when we're demanding a sign from God when we're not supposed to, because he's already done enough, he will not feed into our greed. He will not serve our avarice. He knows when we need a sign. So if you're in a circumstance, in a situation where you're saying, God, I need to show you more, and God's not answering you, it's because he's saying to you, I've already shown you everything that you could possibly need. Because that's the lesson in this conversation that Jesus has with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He points to Jonah. He points to history. Sometimes the sign we need to see is the sign that's already happened through the stories in this book, through the death and the resurrection of Christ through the testimonies of the people in this room. When you are in life group and meeting for coffee and going to devoted conferences and you begin to hear the story of people's redemption, that's part of God giving you the sign that you need to find the faith that he wants you to have. Be careful that you're not the person that's always asking for another sign. And don't get angry at God when he doesn't give it to you. Take that as a word from him. Look behind you at the story of your journey and the story of the journey of the people around you and you will find every sign that you need. Invite the band to come up. Listen to this. This is what we've been building towards. The peace you seek in your situation is dependent upon the virtue of peace that is already in you. The peace that you seek in your situation is dependent upon the virtue of peace that is already in you. You must believe, yes, as we have already discussed at great length tonight, but step two is you've got to be willing to be the source of peace in your circumstance. Matthew 8, 23 to 27. Matthew 8. Then Jesus got into the boat. And he started across the lake with his disciples. Listen to this. This is so rich. Suddenly a fierce storm struck the lake with waves breaking into the boat. What is this? It's a prophetic picture of a circumstance that has no shalom. The the, the idea of a storm is the antithesis of the experience of peace that we long for. But Jesus, he's in the boat. What was he doing? He's asleep. Why is that detail given to us? Because God wants us to see the shalom of Christ in the midst of a circumstance and a situation where there was no peace. The disciples went to him 
woke him up shouting, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. Now, these are men that, have, that earned their living on these seas since they were children, many of them. And so if they're scared, they're supposed to be afraid. This is a terrible storm. Jesus responded, listen to what he says. Why are you afraid? The storm hasn't stopped. The waves haven't stopped breaking over gunwales of that boat. That ship is going down. Jesus is just getting up from his nap. And he looks at them and says, what are, you, what are you afraid of? And then he says, you have so little faith. Then he got up, he rebuked the wind, he rebuked the waves, and suddenly there was a great calm. Jehovah Shalom. The disciples were amazed. Who is this man, they asked. Even the winds and the waves, they obey him. This story is so powerful. It couldn't be more connected to the story of Gideon. The two big focuses of this encounter is faith and the peace that Jesus carried inside of him. And when there is faith to believe that peace is possible, and when the virtue of peace is profoundly and strongly present in our character, then there can always be shalom in our outward circumstance and our situation. Stand with me. Father, for the people that are here tonight and maybe the situation of their life, it's just as real and just as desperate as the story of Judges 6. It could be their marriage. It could be their, their struggle with their addiction. It could be their, their relationship with their children. It could be a crisis at their job. It could be a situation with their finances, God. It could be a diagnosis from a doctor that they would say that they're in the midst of a storm of life that is equivalent, that would rise to, and maybe some people will say, my situation is worse than Gideon's. That they would believe tonight that shalom is possible. That you can be the God of peace in their circumstance. I think God about the father who was frustrated with the disciples as he was waiting for Jesus and, and Peter and James and John to come down for the Mount of Transfiguration and they could not minister to his son. And Jesus comes and he says the same thing. He's frustrated with the disciples. How much longer are you not going to have faith? And, and so he says to the man, do you believe? And, and the father says, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. Let that be somebody's cry tonight that they would say, God, I believe that shalom is possible in my situation, but help me with my unbelief. And may it be, oh God, that the virtue of peace, the character of peace, the peace that's on the inside, as we begin to unpack how to make that happen next week, that our character would begin to grow so that we might look more like your son, so we can be the person that stands up in the boat in the storms of life and say, peace, be still, and see the shalom of heaven come to our circumstance. Let's worship together.